Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. Hey, Ron Jones, welcome to the podcast. Alan, thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's great to have you. We've had a number of guests on here, but we've never had one with their own registration mark. You are the Green Builder Circle R. Well, according to the U.S. Trade and Patent Office, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's a good source. <laughs> I'm going to get into it later about how you how you, um, how you you came to that. Obviously, you are you have a leadership role and president, founder, co-founder of Green Builder Media, but um, I'm assuming that was outside of outside of that um that effort yeah that was actually more of a uh an effect than a cause yeah okay sort of uh, came in reverse order on this episode of residentially speaking we are joined by ron jones ron is the president and co-founder of green builder media and a recognized influencer thought leader and expert in sustainability design construction certifications and green building programs Ron is the only person ever to serve on the national boards of directors of both the National Association of Home Builders, NEHB, and the U.S. Green Building Council, USGBC. He was chairman of the committee that created the National Green Building Standard, ICC 700, which was the first national green building standard in the U.S. He also served for seven years on the committee that developed and launched USGBC's Lead for Homes, a program we all know. Our discussion will walk through his background, his influences, and how we progress to green building. We'll discuss the evolution of green building in the US and green building programs, and his assessment on the state of the industry and what the future holds on this important topic of sustainability. Residentially speaking, of course. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You, um, your credentials and bona fides are so impressive. Um, for folks who may not know you, and that's hard to believe, but there may be some out there, uh, know about you. you um, you're a Colorado resident. You uh, were a member of, the, of NEHB for 30 years, uh, and as well as also uh, served on the National Board of Directors for U.S. Green Building Council. And I know that that that's a rarity, right? There's not many people that kind of do both. And you may have done them at the same time. Is that right? I don't know of anybody uh, other than myself who served um, on the board, National Board of Directors for both of those organizations. And yes, it was uh, concurrent. So it was sort of like being on the uh, National Democratic Committee and the National Republican <laughs> Committee uh, at the same time. Yeah, it's a great analogy. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and then you also obviously then, uh, and we'll, again, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but you chaired the committee that ended up developing the, um, the um, ICC 700, what's known as the National Green Building Standard. And that was, yeah, a, that, that, was that was a consensus committee from both organizations. Is that right? Uh, it actually was a consensus committee that was seated by the International Code Council, ICC and NHB. Uh, there was representation from USGBC on the committee, but it was a, a tremendous privilege for a guy with a tool belt, a pickup truck, and a payroll to meet. Yeah. And then you also, um, I know you've involved in development of Lead for Homes and obviously president, as I mentioned, president, co-founder of Green Builder Media. And you've been in the industry 
30 plus years. Well, right. I'm, I, I don't, I don't say, I don't claim anything more than 30 with DuPont. It starts to <laughs> I get tell people that uh, there was only one E in green when I started. So there you go. That's right. So, uh, yeah. So how did you get started? So are you from Colorado originally? Is that where you, well, I wasn't born in Colorado. I got here as quick as I could. Um, I was born in New Mexico and raised down there. And uh, actually, after my uh, tour of duty in the service, I ended up going back to New Mexico to go to college and started my building career as a professional uh, at that point and ended up uh, working almost a quarter of a century uh, in that market. And, um, and then I ended up back here in Colorado in the high country. Okay. And you were building custom homes. Is that right? Yeah. My specialty was uh, high-end uh, custom homes on mm, challenging sites, I would say. Okay. So you'd build a home or two a year, one every couple of years. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Sometimes it would take more than a year to complete one of our projects. They were pretty substantial and um, oftentimes they were in extremely difficult terrain or um, geology, those sorts of things. So it wasn't uh, the kind of job that was for everybody, but it's, it's what we like specializing in. Yes, yeah, I know I've talked to enough custom home builders. I had one tell me that when they have a client come in, they'll interview the client. And obviously the client is there to assess the builder and can they work with this person? Do they have what I need? But then the builder tells me, well, I'm also interviewing them. They don't know it, but can I live with this person for a year or two as my customer? Is that your experience as well? Yeah, I think at, at the most basic level, Alan, the reason that as a builder that you work for yourself is so you can say no, not so you can say yes, because uh, there were many times over the years when I, I knew that the fit wasn't quite right. And the best thing for me to do was to steer uh, that person or that couple in a direction that was going to benefit everybody. Yeah. And then, so as you were doing that, so you started young, right? You picked up a tool belt in your, teen <laughs> in your teenage years? Yeah, actually, prior to that, uh, I uh, worked my first uh, summer uh, for pay uh, at 12 years of age in 1963. And that was in Colorado, down in southeastern Colorado. And um, so that was my first true job in construction. I had always nibbled around the edges and, and uh with my Tonka trucks, I built lots of communities, but uh, that was uh, at, a, at an earlier stage. Is there, and have you done all, have you worked in all the trades? I mean, have you swung a hammer and put drywall up and roofing and? Yeah, pretty much everything. I, my feeling is that uh, I had to know as much about every aspect and every phase of the job as the people that were performing those specialties. So while, for example, I can't finish concrete to the degree that I need it to be finished, I know more about the chemistry of concrete and the placement of concrete and everything about concrete than anybody who ever brought a shovel onto my job site, because that's my responsibility. That's my job. Yeah, that makes sense. Dry, how are you at mudding and taping on drywall? Not worth a darn, but <laughs> I, I know uh, good work when I see it, and I know uh, work that is substandard when I see it. So we we hold a very high standard. I think one of the things, if I, I guess the thing that probably delineates us from most of the builders that I ever knew um, is the fact that my lead man, who's been with me for 40 years, hmm. um, 
and one of us would be on the job site if there was any activity going on. There was never a time ever when we allowed the subcontractors to control the job site or to be working there without uh, our presence. Yeah, that's great. Um, and during that time, so are you still, well, first of all, are you still building? I'm building, but I stopped building for clients in 2005. Um, there was a point in time when I sort of could see the horizon out in front of me. And I had a wonderful crew that I had assembled over the years. And I told them that uh, we had a, a, we had a multi-year waiting list at the time. Wow. Uh, actually six years. And I, uh, I told them that that was the good news. The bad news is that uh, I never want to come to work someday and know that my best work is behind me. Yeah. And that day would be inevitable. So I set a, a limit. I said, we'll work off the waiting list and then I'll do 20 more and that's it. Huh. And uh, so that's, that's how it wrapped up. And that ended up being in 2005, which was coincidentally when we started Green Builder Media. Yep. And uh, we continue to build and have projects all over the country. And my opus is the project that you see behind this, behind me there uh, on the screen. That's uh, for those who, who don't know, it's Mariposa Meadows, which is a, uh, uh, a high mountain project that we're doing at 10,400 feet here in Colorado. It's completely off grid. And I, I've been working on that uh, continuously since uh, we bought the property, but um, I don't build for clients anymore. Okay. And during your early time, um, as you were learning the business and, and starting to build, like who were your early influencers and or, uh, or, you know, good or bad, right? Like, I'm not looking for names, obviously, but like, what were you seeing that maybe needed to be a, that you said, well, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way. What were some of those things that you saw in the early part of your career that you felt you could improve upon? Well, to be honest with you, the, the, the early influencers for me were my grandparents who, who helped mm -hmm. to raise me. And um, they were people of very modest means. And so they had to be extremely efficient with limited resources. So I had a great understanding of the connection between healthy living and uh, stewardship and uh, being resourceful with, with uh, materials and, and uh, uh, other assets. So I carried that over into the way I approached building things. And I was very fortunate that first summer when I strapped on the apron, like I said, at the age of 12, uh, I was put under the care and feeding of a couple of master carpenters, uh, uh, a couple of gentlemen, uh, one named Tony, one named Herschel, uh, an Italian-American and a German-American. And they were, they were old school and hmm. they didn't put up with any nonsense, uh, but they took me under their wing. and. Um, uh, together, uh, they managed to teach me how to be what they called decent help. And yeah, that's right. a pretty high standard. And there were, that's great. Decent help. I like, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. <laughs> um, and so were people, how did the, then talk a little bit about how you came to the sustainable side, the green building side, were your clients asking for that? Were you, was a, obviously it was a parallel path or interest. And then at some point you saw these merging. Well, it, it, yeah, there was sort of an ethic that developed about taking care of things. Um, and it had to do not only with um, material resources, but just maintaining the job site and uh, taking care of your tools and, and having respect for other people's work. But I guess if I could relay a story that would be my first 
experience in, in looking back in what I would call a green building activity. It was on the afternoon when John Kennedy was killed in uh, November of 1963. Yeah. And after school, I was out in a brickyard uh, cleaning mortar off used bricks because they was, were in high demand. They were going to be recycled. And so I can point to that and say that that was actually my first activity in the overall realm of, of green building. Yeah, we call that circular economy, right? The reuse, recycle. Yeah, and it wasn't, materials. A, wasn't a lot of fun. I, I got paid a penny a piece for the bricks. And uh, believe it or not, before dark and after school, I could uh, clean about $10 worth of bricks. Uh, and that right? that's a lot of money for a 12-year-old kid. That's Yeah, 10 bucks. Yeah, that's right. That's a lot of money. And um, so from there, obviously, and then did, did clients start to seek you out for your your, your knowledge yeah. and experience in the green building area? No, that didn't really happen until uh, much later. Um, I was fortunate to have an opportunity to um, attend college to study architecture on the GI Bill after I got out of the service. And uh, I, I, it didn't take too long to, to realize that um, uh, I really didn't want to be um, confined to the to to being an architect and I, I know that's a little shocking i wanted architects to work for me and okay. uh, uh because in my heart and in my brain i'm a builder and so uh, I, I while i did a little bit of graduate work i, I didn't uh, pursue the professional degree i already had a construction company that was up and running and we were doing more interesting uh projects than the uh, folks at the university were were talking about talking so about, yeah. so it didn't it didn't take too long to figure that out but um i built my first uh true custom home and and i'll give you a definition on that uh that's it's probably the most misused term in the industry a custom home is one which is designed and built for a specific client on a specific site it's that simple yep. so anything else is it may be great but it's not a custom home my first custom home was in 1985, and from day one, uh, we strove to uh, practice all of the measures that, that um, came with the ethic of, of being a great builder. And mm -hmm. so it didn't take too long for us to develop a reputation and to uh, be accepted in, in the community. And, and I have to tell you, one of the most rewarding things was that uh, when we would start a project, and they were usually in pretty high-end areas, uh, you know, the neighbors were always skeptical and they were unhappy that there was another house going up or something like that. But by the time we finished the project, they would often come and say, hey, we're going to miss you guys. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because yeah. we would patrol up and down the street and make sure there was no trash. They would even say, hey, we felt so secure with you guys here because you're always keeping an eye on everything. So that meant a lot to be um, you know, not only accepted, but welcomed in, in those situations. And we had a lot of referrals from people who were neighbors of projects, not just our customers. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. So at, at some point, then you got noticed and or had ambitions to kind of influence the industry in a broader scale, got somebody recognize you nationally, or you got you started to get involved, talk about how you got involved. Well, uh, I was never a Boy Scout. I, you know, I never had time for organizational activities like that. Um, but it really came from my product suppliers and some of my sub subcontractors who would come to me from time to time and they would say, 
have you thought about joining the Home Builders Association? And I'd say, no, not really. I, you know, I haven't given it any thought. It seemed like it was uh, sort of an activity that was uh, directed more toward track builders and, and large companies and so forth. Uh, and they said, we really need representation from, from the custom side of the industry and from people who uh, you know, have developed a, a presence in the community and a, a good reputation. And one thing led to another. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of guy that just sends in a check with his dues, uh, I'm gonna participate. So right away, I kind of dove in and uh, I joined the uh, local Home Builders Association in uh, 1993. And uh, I didn't realize that that automatically made me a member of the state association and the national association because it's a federation, but that was the case. And long story short, by uh, 1996, I was president of the local association. 1999, I was president of the state association. Hmm. And 2001 and 2002, I was actually privileged to serve as a national vice president uh, for the National Association. I served five years on the executive committee there. Wow, I didn't, I did not know that. So, um, and then, and at that time, then you, how did the how did the green building work its way into that? That was that topic of discussion. Were you, you were helping lead that, drive that? What was what was going on in the early two thousands in this area? As with, um, as with most uh, trade associations, uh, it, it was something that was reactive. It wasn't something that was proactive. Okay. And if you, if you really trace it back, what happened was that there were people on the national staff who were savvy enough to understand that there were, there were some headlights in the tunnel that were headed toward the industry. And they were uh, these three trains called the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. And of course, all of those had been put in place in the early 70s, starting with the Nixon administration. And it was just now beginning to dawn on the industry that these were going to be big factors in the future of home building and of land development and all sorts of things uh, going forward. So the association picked a few uh, uh, members from the leadership and some very bright staff members. And they did a, uh, they researched this whole green building phenomenon. They did a, uh, a couple of years worth of uh, research on it and came back with a report that said that the association needed desperately to get some policy on the books that would help the members in the industry to uh, work through the challenges that were gonna be resulting from these uh, the implementation of these these federal uh, uh, these federal programs. So the, the the association decided to establish an entirely new and very uh, potent uh, committee, the Environmental Issues Committee. And I was fortunate enough to uh, secure a seat on that committee. Mm -hmm. There were supposed to be four stools, uh, four four legs under the stool. Uh, the three acts, uh, federal acts that I just mentioned, and this thing called green building. Uh, in the first meeting, uh, we were all divided into groups uh, uh, that were assigned to these various uh, uh, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and uh, Endangered Species Act uh, subgroups. And at the end of the meeting, not a word had been said about green building. And so uh, I uh, raised my hand and I uh, asked the chairman, what about this fourth leg under the stool? And uh, 
There was another gentleman across the table from me. Uh, eventually, we became friends, but he said to me right in that open meeting, I don't want to hear about green building. If you demonstrate that you can do it, somebody will make us do it. And that was the, that was the uh, attitude uh, of the association and of the industry at large at that time. So I knew that there was going to be a boulder on a steep hill that I was going to be pushing for as long as I was involved. Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea it went back that far, the, the genesis of this, to those, to the, to those efforts on the, on the federal level. And, and there was one other uh, piece of news that precipitated it. The U.S. Green Building Council had come about a few years earlier, and it was largely directed toward the architectural community, and it had to do more with commercial building. But there was rumblings that they were going to put out a a, a set of uh, rules for green building in the residential sector. And that that frightened NHB because uh, their, their approach is all about control and containment. They didn't want the, the uh, green building movement to get too far out in front of them uh, sure. where they yeah. couldn't uh, have some influence on it. So the, the, the pressures from the market came from that side. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? You want to be proactive and lead it, influence it when and where They wanted can. to own it in, in, yeah. in a sense. Right. If, you know, for the listeners who, who may not be so aware, but this is an important topic in, in construction because in what we call the built environment, right? In construction, whether it's residential, commercial, help me out, it's either energy use or at least natural resources. 40% uh, of the world's resources and or energy it's consumed in the built environment. That's both building and then operating for years afterwards. So it's yeah, a huge, you know, it's, right? yeah, it's, it's, it's just it's tremendous. A, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's it's a, a, a huge uh, element in, in everything that we think about uh, re relative to environmental issues and, and resource management. Um, I like to call construction the most conspicuously consumptive activity known to man. And part of the reason is because if you are in a factory and you're producing something, you're behind closed walls, uh, typically. Yeah. And, and people, after a while, they sort of take it for granted. In a construction site, you're right out there for everybody to see. And it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a bungalow or if it's a high rise or if it's a skyscraper. Uh, people are going to see everything that you do. Uh, and, you know, that that project has to stand alone in terms of the response that it has to everything else that happens in the world. Yeah. And then I saw something on your website that talked about. Um, so obviously, we have a huge built environment today. And then going forward, there's going to be the equivalent of third um, New York City, the, the amount of uh, building space, you know, in New York City every will be built every 35 days for the next 35 years. I mean, that is just phenomenal. Pretty frightening, really, isn't it? When you really think frightening. So my daughter's in her mid twenties over the course of her, you know, much of her life here next 35 years, she'll be 60 some years old. There's going to be, I did the math. That's 365 new New York cities in, in space and in buildings and in, in homes. Well, I think that really speaks to an important point, And that is that, Perhaps, and this may be getting ahead of our discussion a little bit, perhaps what we need to be looking at is how we're going to rebuild and redevelop uh, those parts of the planet that have already uh, endured uh, the worst of it, and that is when they were originally converted into the built environment. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I guess the other stats I've seen say that um, the built, so of, of that 40%, about a third of it, say maybe 11, 12 points or so, is from the construction, right? Consumption of resources, emissions, this kind of thing. And then the remainder two thirds is during the life, the operation of the building. Do I have that right? About a third, two thirds, roughly 75, 25, maybe? I think that's about right. I, I'm not sure where the, the other factor is the transportation for moving all the stuff around that, that you know, it takes to, to complete a project. Uh, I'm not sure which part that fits into, but that's a huge factor as well. As well, yeah. And so that's why I know from DuPont's perspective, obviously, um, we our products help play a big role in the in the operate portion, <laughs> which is which is the, the dominant part of it, not that we can't influence the other part either impact the other part either. But, you know, building a good tight envelope, um, minimize helping minimize energy use over the light next 50 hundred years of the building obviously has a has a major part uh, plays a major role in helping uh, decarbonize. Well, first of all, I have to compliment DuPont, not only for its suite of projects uh, and suite of products that have moved building science probably more than, than just about anybody else. And it's, it's not rocket science, but it is building science. And you guys figured out early on that you can't slap a Band-Aid on it. Uh, I remember... Um, a quote from, from a gentleman in the industry who said, you can take a, a, a crappy house, uh, put all the bells and whistles in the world on it, and you still have a crappy house, but <laughs> it has bells and whistles. And instead, what, what you did was develop uh, a suite of products that allowed for a, a big move in, in toward efficiency. We didn't understand necessarily uh, the importance of controlling the movement of air, the movement of water, and the movement of heat. It became clear uh, over time, but there were not the responses to it that we had to have. Fortunately, today, because of the, the kind of research and the products that, that you have and other companies, um, we don't have to work in a vacuum anymore. Uh, all of that is, is laid out there for us and there's no excuse, there's no reason for not building uh, efficient, healthy, durable, reliable structures. Right. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that's a little bit forward looking, but then I'm going to come back. So because only because it's on the tip of my, my tongue here. Okay. Do you feel that we're at a tipping point? Are we at an inflection point right now in the construction industry in terms of um, you know, ESGs and, and desire to, to build right and, and focus on sustainability. It, it feels like it to me, but I'm interested in where, in your perspective. Uh, well, I'm not sure that philosophically uh, the industry has moved that far, but I think because of the pressures that are the result of all of the things that they talk about endlessly, labor shortages, material difficulties, um, climate issues, transportation problems, for crying out loud, the pandemic. All of these things have created, if you will, a perfect storm that sort of manufactures that inflection point. We, I don't think it's because the industry 
as a whole has become enlightened. I'm sorry to say that. I think it's because out of necessity, we're having to find alternatives. So I think some of the things that we will see is uh, are, are evident in, in uh, areas like offsite construction, in uh, also in, in materials that are being developed uh, from unusual sources and the technologies that allow us to, to actually measure performance that we never had before. So I think, you know, all of the tools are in place. It's, it's a function of who's going to understand it well enough to be successful at it. Yeah, so let's, let's come back to that point, because I know that's a, that could be a really deep discussion. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, the National Green Building Standard. So actually, my, my question to you is, and, and interested in your perspective, there's a whole host of, of green building standards out there, right? National Green Building Standards, Lead for Homes, um, obviously, Energy Star, three point, you know, 1 1.0, 2.0, um, My first question is, why are there so many? Is it, is it that folks want different things and we're just trying to address how folks want to meet these challenges and it's different flavors to all to get to the same spot? Or are there deficiencies that the next one tries to address? Like, why are there so many of these? That's one question I've always had. Well, I think that... Uh... It's, a, it's a, a complex answer. Part of it comes from the fact that um, different parts of the country not only have you know, vastly different climates, but also different cultures. And there are people in almost every part of the country who are committed and passionate about environmental issues and, uh, and about efficiencies and, and the energy issues. Um, and so it would depend on where you're from. If you're from the Southwest in particular, water is a huge deal. And it has been for centuries. If yeah. you were from the Southeast, um, you've got a different set of criteria. And I think what happened is that there was a spontaneous growth of interest in this subject uh, that took place all around the country. And so I've worked with a lot of groups to develop regional rating systems and programs around the country. Uh, but there was a need to unify some of that into national standards. Uh, I served on the steering committee for Lead for Homes uh, for seven years. And uh, Lead for Homes uh, developed a rating system, not a standard, uh, and uh, tried to apply it uh, in various ways and, and it had some success, uh, but it didn't appeal to the mainstream builder for better or worse. And so it, it became obvious that because the I codes are sort of the law of the land, if you will, uh, around building codes in the country that there was an opportunity for the ICC and for the mainstream home building industry to uh, develop a, a standard uh, and uh, have it, you know, go through the screening process, the, the uh, uh, approval of ANSI, and give it that legitimacy that nothing else really had. And so it was a tremendous opportunity um, to have an effect that would be long-reaching, uh, far-reaching uh, in this, in this uh, industry. So Lead for Homes was prior to the National Green Building Standard, is that right? Or about, um, about the yes. same time. And in fact, uh, I, I uh, 
resigned from the steering committee in order to accept the chairmanship for the uh, committee that developed the standard. Okay. Okay. And um, so today that, so do you like in your mind, do you, do we have a, a standard or are there many standards? Like, do you look at the national green building standard ICC 700 as kind of the de facto preeminent green building standard? Well, in terms of penetration into the market, it's interesting. Um, there's a, there's a pretty substantial total number of projects of dwelling units that have been uh, certified under the National Green Building Standard. Um, but the vast majority, uh, somewhere 75, 80% of them are multifamily. Mm. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Same, same is true with Lead for Homes. But you also have other uh, influences that I think are really important, uh, such as uh, the passive house um, uh, standard that, that um, pushes the envelope. It, it doesn't, you know, you, you, there's no way that the industry can just rest on its laurels or stand still because there are always pressures to raise the ceiling. What's interesting about the standard is it raised the floor. And so yeah. uh, while other people can push that ceiling and continue to, to drive toward um, the perfect solution, it was more important in my mind to bring the entry level up to a standard that we could all um, survive with. Yeah. Do you see passive house growing? I do, but I'm not sure what the metrics are. Okay. So I've heard about it recently and I've heard about it in um, mostly in talking about multifamily. Mm -hmm. Kind of to your point earlier around lead for homes. Yeah, we see quite a bit of information that comes across individual projects or groups that are involved. Um, you know, I think that it, the origins are out of Europe. And so um, a lot of that was imported. Right. And then, so for today, like, do we have, so you, you well, let's go back to the discussion around the inflection point. So the argument I would make is, that and I use this as kind of a, a proxy, but uh, the, the argument I would make is that I'm seeing more and more corporations release ESG reports. I, I feel like we are at a bit of an inflection point here, in that um, we see more and more corporations releasing their ESG reports. We see more and more public home builders starting to release these reports um, and focus here. We're seeing tremendous amounts of money flow in an investment. Um, talk about ESG goals and, um, uh, you know, dry, helping drive innovations around sustainability. DuPont has aligned where its, um, its innovation projects must line up and impact, you know, our sustainable development goals, which come from the UN sustainable development goals. Um, and so we've aligned around, you know, climate and circular economy and, and some other and um, green chemicals and, and these kind of things. But the money, to me, the, mo the, the money that's coming from private equity and, and the money funds um, seems to be driving a lot. And, and I would refer folks, and I don't know if you've seen it, Ron, this um, BlackRock Capital, the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, writes a letter to CEOs every year. And in this annual letter, he talks about investments in the sustainability uh, space just accelerating and growing and believing that this is going to be the next area of in, tremendous innovation and tremendous amounts of money flowing into it. So I, 
I don't know, but that, that's, that's, that's my view. That's simply looking at the, you know, somebody like a BlackRock or the, a major fund and kind of painting with a broad brush across the industry. I'm feeling like we're at an inflection point. It could just be my education. I'm catching up to everybody else. Uh, that's certainly possible. But um, but you're not quite there yet. You still there. We're not at a tipping point yet in your in your mind. I think what, what we have to do is is look at the structure of of the home building industry. Um, while the manufacturers uh, and big money investors and and uh, you know federal policy and everything point exactly in the direction that you're talking about, uh, and the necessity for a company to participate in that, even if they're brought kicking and screaming, uh, like some of the national builders have been, uh, you're, you're exactly right, it's happening. But the truth of the matter is that the majority of the homes that are built in this country are built by, by small businesses. And I can tell you from personal experience that um, it's very difficult to have a, uh, enough time and human resource to stay on top of these trends when your main concern is making sure that you pass your insulation inspection so that right. you can dock sheetrock the next yeah. day. Yeah, from the local and, code and official, so, right. Yeah, the realities of it are that uh, the typical building company and especially the small builder is lucky just to be able to... Um, deliver a quality product and the big picture issues are very difficult to embrace. I don't know if I hadn't had uh, and such an extraordinary group of, of people that, that worked with me over the years, um, it got to the point where, uh, you know, I, if I was around uh, for too long, too many days in a row, they'd say, don't you have a meeting to go to somewhere or don't you need to give a talk somewhere or whatever? <laughs> because yeah. they, they were so good, they didn't really need me to be there. But um, that allowed me the freedom to participate in the dialogue and to have an opportunity to be a voice that was unusual because uh, it came from my sector of the industry. Yeah. So in your mind, it's going to have to, so in order to reach those, that this fragmented industry, it's going, it's going to require innovation. Obviously you got to make it so easy <laughs> and obvious that folk and, and competitive, right. And, and at the right price, such that folks will want to use these products and innovations. The interesting thing that, about it is that we've, we've always had this ridiculous notion uh about cost instead of talking about value. Mm -hmm. And the, the fact of the matter is that cost, if you have a, a level playing field, is not really the problem because people will find a way. We have the financial vehicles, if you will, to allow uh, for uh, the improvements and the advances that we need in the built environment uh, on a house by house basis, but there are efficiencies that are necessary in order to be successful as a builder. A builder doesn't want to solve problems. A builder wants to avoid problems in the first place. So DuPont can help them by doing exactly what you've done. And that's creating a solution that's turnkey. And you say, we have these 
uh, this suite of products, we have these elements that you can put in place and it's gonna take care of any air barrier um, issues that you have. And so being able to sleep at night and rest on that uh, is a big deal. Do you view offsite construction as help? How, how much of an impact can offsite construction make? And I'm talking about like more than just trusses and these kind of like, you know, wall panels. And, and, and I think that we're going to see a, a, a continuing surge in um, prefabrication. And I think that one of the uh, big uh, uh, impediments uh, is that the transportation is, is a big factor moving these structures across state lines and around the country and making sure that they're meeting the criteria for width and height and weight and everything else that has to happen and still uh, coming up with uh, solutions that are appealing to people and that perform well. But I think there's an inevitability uh, that we're gonna see less and less on-site activity uh, that is from the ground up. Now, rural markets and remote markets uh, like the one I'm in, that's not necessarily the case. But even here, um, our project that we've been working on here now for uh, quite a while is uh, employing structural insulated panels, for example. And so um, that was a tremendous um, benefit to us in terms of uh, the speed of construction, also uh, in the performance of the buildings, uh, the waste reduction, all those things. But yeah. the transportation and the logistics uh, were very difficult. So are you optimistic about the future? Are you pessimistic? Like, so we're not quite at a tipping point. At some point we'll get there and things will move even faster. Um, where are you on the optimism scale? Well, it's, it's pretty hard when, uh, when you see the news that comes out of Capitol Hill and um, when you look at the continued determination of the fossil fuel industries to do business as usual, continue to um, destroy ecosystems, uh, entire populations are at risk. I think that we have some, some really difficult problems uh, that we've got to embrace. Um, I'm not sure that our species has the will to make the changes necessary to reverse uh, what we've seen in, in, in climate change. I almost feel like our only chance is to have technologies developed where the CO2 can be removed from the atmosphere and put to some other use. Uh, technology may have to save us because I'm not sure that we have enough passion or will to do it on our own. And ironically, we may be the first species in the history of the world that knowingly participated in their own extinction. <laughs> right. That's kind of a poor legacy. It's a really sobering thought, yeah. Wow, on, the po on the positive side, I will say, I think that there is a generational shift that's taking place. Um, we deal with companies all over the country and, and all over the world through the media company. And uh, at Green Builder, we find young people all over the place who are committed, who are determined, and who are much more optimistic than the old guys like me. So uh, it's, it's, you know, it's there, it could be that 
we make a turn and we have a brighter future, I certainly hope so. Yeah, hope so too. Have we, um, so we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything top of mind for you that we haven't talked about that you think is a key message for the industry uh, to hear and to think about and kind of, you know, and, and mull over? You know, one thing that I would like to do is, is I'd like to, to mention uh, someone who was a huge influence on me in, in, at, at the national level and at a personal level. Uh, John Wesley Miller from Tucson, he passed away in May of this year. He was well into his 80s. Um, if there was ever a green builder, it was John Wesley Miller. And it was a privilege to know him and to work with him and to uh, learn from him. He was the general contractor on the Biosphere 2. He he was on a first name basis with Buckminster Fuller and with great minds like that. And there was no challenge that was too big for him. I think the thing that I learned from him that's most important and the thing that I would share if I only had one thing I could say to an aspiring builder or, an, or, or anybody for that matter, it's always be more interested in what you don't know than what you do know because there's a lot more of it out there. <laughs> and we're never going to know or understand everything. But the more we can absorb, the better we're going to be. And it opens new frontiers. It opens new questions that we can find answers to. So, you know, I, I, I really need to always remember and, and have the humility uh, of understanding. There were plenty of times when I was on the board of USGBC, it was real easy to see I was the dumbest guy in the room. But you know what? That meant there were some pretty smart people there. Yeah. And so uh, the same is true in a lot of other scenarios. Always seek to be with people that uh, uh, you consider to be smarter than you are, because that's the only way you're going to learn anything. Yeah, great words of wisdom. So Ron Jones, it's been great talking with you. It's, it's fantastic knowing we have smart, capable talented, passionate people, motivated people like yourself to, to move us forward. Um, really appreciate the work you've done and the work you're doing and keep fighting the good fight for us. And, and we'll all we'll all do the same. So it's been great talking to you today. Thank you, Alan. It was my privilege. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions, who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions, such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Frothback spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing, and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap.